profound discussion with the leaders of our time. Let's join their journey and find out how they got to where they are today. Welcome to The Riddick Show. My name is Dave Kinley. My guest today has a clear mission to inspire building leaders to look within, harness their strengths, and bet on themselves. From a small-town dairy farmer to a global changemaker and boardroom influencer, Annette has built and run some of the most powerful brands in the world. Welcome, Annette. Yeah, great, uh, great way to start my story. Uh, so I was born and raised in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, uh, and I was born on June 24th and uh, St. John Baptiste Day, and my middle name is Joan. Uh, my parents wanted, uh, they loved this country, and within a year, I think, of coming in 51, they became Canadian citizens. And the reason they came is that, from the Netherlands, is that the that the Canadians liberated Holland. And they were so impressed with the Canadian soldiers, the values of them, you know, and they had the experience of other soldiers, right? Um, it wasn't, it was quite a world war. I had not heard that before. Yeah, that's a, and that's it's, an and interesting it's true. Comment. They made a choice. They, they applied to Australia, New Zealand, uh, uh, and Canada. And Canada was the place they wanted to come. And at the time, it was the beginning of the the Dutch farmers leaving, right. um, and um, and so the, it's a it is a wonderful story. My parents came here in 1951. They came here on their honeymoon uh, and stayed right. And uh, my father became a, a herdsman uh, on a farm with my mom was the cleaner and in Truro. And so first couple of years there, then went on to St. Avex to become the herdsman on the, the St. Avex farm. Found some friends, put down the down payment on a farm in North Sydney and upper North Sydney, as a matter of fact. And uh, there they, uh, they struck roots and uh, started wow. a farm, dairy farm. Well, there's a, you know, I was just thinking, it struck me so, uh, when you to think that our fighters were our best ambassadors exactly. at that time, yep. and you think of the lessons that today's yep. fighters could learn. Yeah, look, Canadians you know, are amazing people, and I don't think that we give uh, us enough credit. We are uh, a very respectful culture. We are, uh, and and my parents talked about this. They they were so impressed with the Canadian soldiers. And uh and really in the in the liberation, the little town that they were in, the Canadians liberated them. So that that was very special. So in 51 they come here, they 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 eventually get to Upper North Sydney. And they had two children at that time, Dorothy and my brother John were uh, in Antigonish, they were born. And uh, then I was born that year that they came to uh, Upper North Sydney. And then I have two brothers uh, after that, Stephen, uh, uh, Andy and Stephen. And we, you know, we, I went to a two room school, six grades, and I became the assistant teacher almost immediately, I think grade one. Um, and I, and, and there were a couple of things that happened in my life, Dave, that really impacted me. My father died way too early. He was 60, but when he was 42, he had a very serious heart attack. And the children right. uh, uh, and my mom uh, really had to run the farm, the dairy farm. For, and, and, and he did 
amazing things. He lived, right, for another 18 years. And, uh, but he loved... He loved, he was a very innovative farmer. He was educated, uh, an agricultural degree uh, at, yeah. at, uh, in, in the Netherlands. And so he, he did, he was the first dairy liquid farmer. And so we built, he built this toilet and we flushed the manure, uh, uh, can I say shit, down yes. the gutters and he'd stir it up. And he was the first guy that in Nova Scotia that would spread the manure uh, and not buy the fertilizer, and save money, and take the labor for the, out of right. the uh, out of the, the 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 farm for the kids, and so that to me, you know, I just really was impacted by that. And my my look, all of us had to work hard, really hard. Uh, but my brother, my brothers, and I, we were. The, I was the organizer of the well. They would say that I wasn't, but I would have been <laughs> the one really organizing everyone on the farm. Uh, you know, I was the go-getter, you know, get up in the morning and my father would whisper to me, he says, he says he'd say to me, and you're my best milker. He wouldn't tell anybody else that. <laughs> and uh, I would be so proud uh, because my parents really loved their kids. And, uh, oh my God, they encouraged us in a very positive way. They weren't people that screamed at their children. They they just really nurtured and encouraged them. And So you, your dad then obviously obviously had some unique skills yes. because that would have been a just a traumatic oh. change in all of your lives in all of our lives and definite you know really in defining your roles and the fact that he could um, step back far enough to find meaningful intelligent ways to grow the farm still yep. and be involved yeah and yeah. But allow you to flourish by letting trusting you. Exactly. No, it's exactly it's what a, happened. It's a great Dave. management. Yeah. Look, lesson. he he. It's a great leadership skill, right? And and he saw the capacity. And I'll tell you, I love telling this little story. So one day we were around the table. That's where our boardroom was. Um, and. I said to my dad, I see, and we had a very, we had a, the railway tracks in front of our house, and a number of times we had accidents, and one severe where the three kids uh, and my uncle and aunt were uh, were flipped out, luckily into a into a snowbank, but got hit by a train, and so it was dangerous, right? And it was very dangerous. So I said, "Pop, why don't we just change the railway? Why can't we move the railway?" But so he, he said, Annette, maybe we can't move the railway, but maybe we can move the driveway. Anyway, brings in the farm loan board and the, and the people that would have worked with him. And, um, and so, and so anyway, one day we're, we're, so we talked to this guy and he, he always encouraged the children to listen, right? We were, we weren't shunt, shunted away. We, we would be with, the people that were, you know, helping us. And, and so, so anyway, so, so the construction's happening on this road. And by the way, to this day, that road is still being maintained by the county. Uh, it's about a quarter of a mile long right. and it allowed the farm to be expanded because it wasn't so dangerous to go across this set of tracks. And the, so the guy that from the farm loan board comes up to my dad and he said, you must be, you know, so happy with this, Tony. And my father in his broken English said, you know what? It was my daughter's idea. <laughs> Can you imagine yeah. being 12 years old 
and someone, an adult, giving you credit. I'll, right. I'll never forget that. He, it's terrific. He always gave me credit, and my mom did too. My mom was the, my mom was the organized person in the family. My father was a more creative guy. Great couple. Great couple. Um, and uh, and I learned a lot about uh, how to, uh, you know, manage. Uh, Manage things from her. She was yeah. she was extraordinary. They were an amazing couple, and uh, and so that that was one that gave me such. I could take a calf from a cow. Like I could, you know, I was driving tractors when I was eight years old. <laughs> like think of that. Yeah. Like the, today, that would not be allowed. Uh, probably called child labor or something. But uh, but think of the things that that we did. We had a lot of responsibility at a very young age, and that really impacted my life in terms of going forward. Yeah. And how did that work then, Annette, with your siblings? You know, it sounds like you were taking a pretty positive leadership role. Yep. How did they fall in t- and around that and They're, find their spot? Yeah, they found their spots. My sister hated the firm, uh, so she did other things. Um, and but she would help bring it in the hay, and she would find her spots. And she was, she's brilliant. She's her IQ is way bigger than mine, and she became a teacher and uh, just a, uh, you know. Just a fantastic teacher, and uh, and uh, she married a teacher, and then my brother, my oldest brother, took over the farm, right, and eventually, eventually sold it. But the farm is still being run by my cousins. Oh, the wow. dairy farm is still being run by my cousins, and so um, I don't know how much longer that's going to last because farms in Cape Breton, I, I think there's only four or so left um, dairy farms, um, so that's all changing. But but that responsibility at such a young age really made a difference. And then my younger brother, Andy, and my youngest brother, which was eight years younger than I, we all, we, the boys and I worked on the farm and, and I don't know, I loved it. I loved, I loved, you know, figuring out how to, how to, you know, breed the the cattle, you know, (laughs) I was fascinated by that all, you know, as a young child. And and I didn't mind working. Um, and I was very, uh, you know, I just, I worked hard and I was very focused. And I always wanted to make it better, better, better. And I remember one time my father and I talked, we talked about putting music in the, in the, in the cow, you know, those days, that you know, it's not like the rotate, rotating, moving cows. And he, it was all, you know, installs. And he puts a, he puts a, uh, let's put, let's, let's sing to our, Let's sing to our cows, mm-hmm. and uh, let or let's let's get some music. And we put music. And, you know, he understood his kids. He knew that we had to find a way to have fun, right? And I remember he bought us a jigger, and he would buy us snowmobiles, and because we had to work hard, like you'd had milk the cows before school. My nickname was Poopy. You know, and you know why? Because I stunk like a cow, right? And it was really tough to have to deal with that as a kid. You're um, probably getting up three, four hours earlier than all of exactly. your friends. Exactly, and all, yep. and then I'd have to, then we'd have to get home six o'clock, milk the cows again. So we would, you know, we would gulp down our food and then milk the cows, and this was like the way of life, right? Right. And this, I was doing that until I was sixteen, and I. I got, I was a basketball player and a soccer player and I was really, uh, it wasn't great, but I was a good player and I loved playing. And, and you could do that between four and six and that's how we got that done. My brother got a car and so he was a good basketball player too. And so we would pop back and forth and get home and milk the cows. And, uh, but I got hit in my back, uh, one of these games and 
which was positive because that uh, uh, resulted in really serious kidney condition that was discovered in right, my, right, in my right, system. Right. Hereditary, we believe, and all these great, great uncles that died, they say, of stomach disease back in the Netherlands, and it is hereditary, and wow. uh, it was hydronephrotic kidneys, and uh, and they were in bad shape. You know, a quarter of one was operating, a third of the other, ureters were all messed up, cysts, everything. And so they they got me prepared at the Northside Hospital for appendicitis, everything. They, they just couldn't figure out what the problem was. Luckily, we found a urologist, doctor, uh, and he, uh, he, he, did, he said, look, she's got a kidney condition. And uh, so we op- they operated uh, almost immediately because I was really d- deteriorating. I was in bad shape. And uh, so he cleaned out the ureters and, and cut away one part of the kidney. Then within nine days, all I had to do, all I did was eat liver because the iron had to be picked up. Right. And they really needed to operate on the second kidney. Nine days later, they operate in the second kidney. And then... So, and it was tough. I was really sick between the ages of 15 and 22. Like, you know, every this is, year. Like, was, this is sophisticated stuff six for hour, that six, part of And then that time, six hours, six, six and a half hours each operation. Wow. Yeah. And a lot of it probably leading, leading edge stuff. Yeah. It, well, you know what? He was, he graduated as a urologist out of right. uh, uh, Mount Vic uh, in Montreal. So okay. he was really sharp, right? Luckily. And he had a stuttering problem. So that's why he came home, which was so God, well, God bless. God bless him. Lucky yeah. me. I'm alive because of him, right? right. And, uh, and, uh, and so I, I, um, so, so the, those, so, so when you're in a hospital bed and I had allergies toward the anesthetic, right? And I was so sick. Oh my God. And I would be so sick. The stitches would be all ripped up and they tried everything. They tried everything to, to, uh, to calm, to calm it down. But it was really bad. I was very sick. And you know, when you wake up, I think the second time I woke up, I really, it's the first time in my life, I just, I said, let me die. Let me like I got to stop this, right? And uh, so that's my baseline. If I ever have a bad right. day, that's what I think of. Annette, remember that day that you woke up at the second operation and you wanted that was your last. You felt that was your last well, there moment. Had to be on the- some lesson about uh, you know going through something like that. I've been through something similar. You know about not always being in control. No, and uh, learning in those early moments that. That are there are just things that are going to happen to you that you cannot control. Yeah. One thing you can control is how you deal with it. Yeah, exactly. And so you you have you make a choice. You got two pathways: you become a victim, or you become, you know, a trailblazer. And and that's the best part of that whole message. It is. Yeah, I'll tell you. And I decided. Hmm, I I realized that if I was nice to the doctors and the nurses and everybody, they treated me better. <laughs> and I realized that uh, when I was really engaged with the doctors and asked them tough questions, and I remember asking that doctor, I said, can I have children? I was 16, 17 years old. And the doctor said, Annette, likely not because your kidneys would really, you know. And that was a good thing. You know, people would say, you know, there was a moment I was, I was sitting in my bed and I'm thinking, hmm, 
can't have, you know, can't have children. Um, well, for a farmer's family, for too, farmer's family, you know. right? It was so. So I just, but I got over it really quickly. And 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 you know, I have many children in my life, many nieces and nephews, and you know, and and uh, in, now I have Stan's children and their grandchildren and our grandchildren. And so that that's all worked out really well. But yeah, you you really. You know, and I missed about six months of school, which is really tough. And, but I, you know, Cape Breton, huh? so the teacher, my math teacher would take me in on Saturday morning, Gwen Shepherd, and, and I'd catch up with her and the biology teacher. You know, they would, they were really amazing. And, but I lost a lot of time. And, uh, mm-hmm. but everybody, it's a village right there. And it's absolutely it, a village. And, 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 you know, that's the big learning that I realized that you needed a lot of people to get you back on your feet and to make things happen, right? And so... And you you can't fight it. You have to welcome it. You have to welcome it. You You, do. You do have to welcome it. And uh, so, you know, I would be in and out of hospitals quite a bit during those years. Um, Just just had infections all the time and it was really driving me crazy. In the end, I I had to take an antibiotic every day of my life until I was 44 years old. Wow. And, uh, and... At 44, I stopped, and my kidneys are the funniest-looking kidneys in the world, but kidneys like lungs regenerate, right? They do. And I think it's fierce. I just decided to, like, and I made my body get fixed. I swear, I did. I decided, and there's a couple of years I was really bad. I was drinking. I was, you know, ended up in the hospital at, at Sackville where I was going Mount A first year mm-hmm. uh, because I was just not taking care of myself. But then I it switched, right? You, you just sort of say, okay, Nat. Went to St. Avex. Parents were happy because I was closer to home. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I just, you know, I finished my degree. I went to, uh, to um, Concordia picked up four courses, finished my degree in two years. Those years, you could do it in three years, right. business, business administration degree. And uh, so me and there were about three or four other women in the class of 75 at the time uh, and uh, got my business degree. And uh, wow. then I, you know, started, I started with the Cape Breton Development Corporation, DEVCO, the, you know, which was a crown corporation that was coal mining and it was also looking for jobs to displace the coal miners, right? And so, right. great experience, nine years God, there. There. Are, there are 10 lessons that we just skipped through there yeah. that, <laughs> you know, that are, that are important lessons that are younger. Yeah. Future leaders, yeah. you know, need to think about, or, you know, not just the obvious ones of resiliency, but, uh, you know, the, the humbleness to accept help and, and, uh, and to understand that you can't do it by yourself and, and all the sort of very, um, I guess less than obvious traits of a good leader that don't get spoken about a lot. Butter than innate in some of our best ones. It, you know, Dave, I, I would say that those two events really impacted my life, really impacted the future, uh, and set the pathway for where uh, I, I wanted to go. And and there was there's one thing in there that I um, that really made a difference for me, and particularly for me as a woman. Um, I was allowed to take risk. My parents encouraged me to take risks and do things that 
boys could do. Maybe because they had to, because they needed the work, right? Right. Doesn't matter. But they treated me like an equal in that family. And my sister, like the boys and girls. That's so extraordinary. Yeah. In the, in the old days. And a farmer at that time. Oh my time, gosh. Yeah. yeah. Now the, the, the oldest brother got the farm. That, that was the way it was, you know, handed down. Uh, uh, but I think that, you know, the, the way I learned the opportunities that I had, the risks that I took, whether it was driving that tractor, whether it was pulling that calf, from that cow when there's a breech birth, whether it was, you know, oh, there were so much, so many situations that were just scared the bejesus out of me, but I did it. I just forced myself and we all force ourselves to get it done, right? And so, and so I say to parents, oh God, allow your children, allow your children to take risks. Don't protect them so much that they're not ready for the tough times ahead, right? And I see that protectionism sometimes uh my parents they they did not protect us they 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 let us be as much as we can we had rules i mean we were we were very disciplined we we go to church and we'd all be lined up with our pretty little outfits and and uh you know sit there like like but but my parents they they were our best friends yeah and they were yeah, parents i that uh, listen to my children that's one of the you know, the scariest uh, thoughts that I have on a daily basis is, yeah. is have I given them the the proper grounding for them to take risk? You know, I have a daughter who who lost her mother when she was six. Yes. And she is the one that chose, she's 18 and she's in uh, University of Edinburgh in uh, Scotland. And uh, she's living the life, uh, oh my gosh, but fearless. Yeah. Fearless and and doesn't even understand risk. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that gives me a little bit of hope. Yeah. Um, but I, I I'd like to maybe you know you you're now sitting um, where you've um, got your first job and and why there like what from farming all of a sudden yep. you go out and you do this mm-hmm. you get your degree in a in a in a very uh, good, quick way. Yep. That's sort of I, bought you your time back yeah. that you might have lost. Yeah. And now, why? Why choose me, that? Let me tell you the moment that I realized what money meant. So I am, uh, it's around the time that uh, I think it was before my father had the heart attack. I, my, uh, there was a car accident and my uncle and aunt, my aunt broke her arm. And I was taking, I was cleaning out every every spring and fall. You'd have to clean the shit out of the the the. Uh, they had a chicken farm, and that was the dirtiest job in the world because the, they were just pooping all over you while you were shoveling shit. And uh, so anyway, so I uh, so anyway, I did, all week I did this right and didn't expect any money. Didn't know what honestly didn't know quite what money was. And my aunt then gives me. 10 $1 bills and puts, and she says, Annette, you know, for all the work that you did, you know, we're going to give you this money. I did, I went crazy. I remember (laughs) holding in my hand, running through the fields to go home and show my parents, look, 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 look. My father, 
I said, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? And, uh, cause we had no money. And, uh, and, and like, remember, it would be five cents for a bag of chips, right? But if they had bag, but the, like everything was so cheap. So anyway, my father, t- he says, here's what we're going to do in it. We're going to go to the bank. He takes me to the bank. He, he did this with his kids. Takes me to the bank. I've got to give my money to this woman. And I am petrified. And, and, and they gave me this book back. And there was the $10, right? And my father is explained to me, and that this is where the money is. Okay. This is where your money is. And you can take it at any time. But, and so I understood the value of money, work, money, bank, like at a very young age, at a very young age. So I was, I was always, uh, and I always, you know, I, I spent money. I, I did things. I, you know, I, in my early days, I traveled a lot. I, you know, I, I love, I love nice clothes. I was, uh, I, I wasn't, I knew in order to be successful, money had an impact. Money's never controlled me, but money's got an impact. So, so I, I discovered that then. So, so I, so I'm looking for a job and, uh, there was a radio station in Port Hawkesbury that was looking for someone to work there. One of the accounting firms was looking at me. Um, then there was a job at Devco and it was working in the industrial development division in, in various, uh, sectors. So I found that fascinating. I could work with the sawmill operators. I could work with in tourism. I could lend people money. And so um, I applied for that job along with seven other people from Cape Breton, all boys. One one of the boys was the mayor's son from, from Glace Bay, where DEFCO was. Anyway, my chances of getting this were like, like really small. I wrote a paper. I wrote a paper and I presented it to him. Of course you did. Of course I did. That's what I did. <laughs> I presented how to to uh, expand the sawmill industry in Cape Breton. And uh, they couldn't believe it, right? And it was David Miller at the time. And mm-hmm. David looks at me and you can tell he interviewed everybody else and he probably already made up his mind. But to his credit, he said, Annette, and there were no women around, very few women around. At his credit, he hired me, and I became a development officer. And wow. I'll tell you, that was a great experience yeah. working and for with some of our younger listeners. Yes. Um, Devco is a development corporation yes. Yes. for the province, yes, and is designed to um, help yep. uh, new initiatives. That's right, and and younger companies get opportunity. That's right, and at the time the. Um, the unemployment rate was 20, 23% in Cape wow. Breton, right? Because wow. the coal plants and the, and the you know, periods of, of, of real tough times, steel plants, those big industries, the ACL plants left. So there was a lot of, lot of uh, you know, exiting of, of, of our youth to, uh, to the rest of the world. And so we had to try to find ways to keep them there. And mm-hmm. so, so, you know, to anybody that wants to get a job, do things that are creative. And, you know, I, for some reason, I just thought this was going to be really tough to get. It was a job I wanted to get. And I thought to myself, why don't I do something like that? And that was very unusual. No one had ever, you know, in those days thought of that, right? And right. so I put together 
what I thought should happen in the, uh, you know, in the, in the, in the forestry industry. So, um, so did that for nine years. It was fascinating. Cole came back. Uh, and I just didn't see, I, yeah, I knew that I would be almost dead before I'd become a vice president there. I became a director in a very short period of time. Right. I moved up the ladder very quickly and, you know, got in the coal side and, um, and just saw that the industry did not, you know, did have a big future. And so decided to leave Cape Breton because there was no, I was probably the highest paid woman. Yeah. Were there any other... At the time. At that time, you know, other than coal, fishing and tourism and farming, like were there any any other sort of, uh, you know, further looking businesses trying to settle in to that area or were there any initiatives that were led by government to try to attract yeah. some new businesses to the, the area? Look, there were... The traditional industries were going through hard times. The cod fishery went right. under during yeah. that time. Almost all, all the fishermen year. industry and and it eventually converted to like lobster and crab and all the specialty stuff that's been created and much better managed. Um, but I, you know, I went through a lot of and we at the time we had in the forestry industry we had the budworm infestation, right? Right. And we had look, Cape Breton has been it's got quite a history, and then the and then the coal then the steel plant. Uh, uh, was closed. Then the did, coal did mines. Did you get the red tide too? At the yeah, a bit of that. Yep. Uh, so it was really, really tough. Huh? And so, and the young people were all leaving. Quite frankly, I was one of the few that stayed. And over the years, finally, that's changing. You know, I think Cape Breton University has a lot to do with that. Where I'm yep. chancellor, I'm very proud to be chancellor now for my twentieth year. And so, you know, building that uh, up and identifying new types of jobs, right? And so the types of jobs, so the service sector, the government sector employed a lot of people in Cape Breton, right? Mm -hmm. Plus plus the traditional industries. And, um, but there was, until three years ago, there was a net exiting of people in Cape, when I was there, there was 170,000 people there. There are 110,000 people there now on Cape Breton Island. Wow. Yeah. So, but it's turned around finally because it is a magnificent place to live. Yeah. A mag, you know, and COVID's really opened up, uh, you know, it was coming in that direction, but COVID really, I think, highlighted uh, yeah. the loveliness of that place. And and so new industries are coming. Biorefining uh, industries are coming. There are, you know, sectors that are really starting to grow um, in the agricultural area. There's uh, fish farming and this is all coming right. about. And the relationship with the Indigenous people finally finally has changed and they're 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 the big leaders on Cape Breton Island in terms of the Clearwater deal the chief Terry Paul Terry Paul did with member 2 right. like there's all kinds of exciting stuff happening there and people are finding jobs which is really encouraging and uh so yeah so it's it's really turned around but at the time I had to leave because I just didn't see a big future for me yeah so I think I think you know before we jump into sort of the modern uh, part of your life uh, and the more recent activity, I, I thought there is one sort of important leadership um, discussion around mentoring 
you know, you, you, you talked a lot about this village and, and the storytelling and, and the support you got from generations before mm-hmm. you in terms of giving you that base confidence mm-hmm. and structure you know, to be able to take that risk. Um, you know, I remember actually I had an uncle in Pomkit, Kingsley Brown. He was a famous uh, um, uh, journalist. Journalist, right. Uh, yeah. For the CBC. Yeah. Yes, yes. And uh, and he used to, he is at all the wars and I think Peter Jennings was his best friend yeah. and the two of them went to all the different wars and yeah. drove the tank. But I remember sitting every summer for weeks you know, in this little den with the fire going. And for six, seven hours, all the kids would just be glued to him like it was a TV set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, sharing these experiences and remembering how important those were to me for a young kid in Canada to, to just hear about the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, so and in our, you know, are the broader society now getting those kinds of... Stories, experiences yeah. and stories and support, yeah. you know, because everybody's working so hard, yeah. you know, they may have been coming from a part of the world where they're just surviving yeah. for the first while yeah. and the structure isn't there. Yeah. Well, how do you feel about that? Look, I think, um, uh, you know, th- those experiences are really critical and important. And, you know, I, one of the things that I did while I was home was uh, we sponsored a Vietnamese family through our church and I was the treasurer of the group, right? And I learned how to give back and you learn how to give back in a place like like Cape Breton. You don't see people on the street there ever. You know why? Because people take care of people on the street. And and look, we all have our, our, you know, our challenges and our social issues and our, uh, you know, capacity issues. But there's really something beautiful about that uh, that uh, piece of, of of the Maritimes. Generally, good people they take care of themselves and they and they uh, and they're they're sponsors. We are sponsors for each other, even when you leave. Uh, mm-hmm. It's really quite something. But I'm a storyteller. And I tell stories wherever I can. Um, and so when I go home uh, next, listen to me, I live in Ontario. And I do live in Ontario. <laughs> I love Ontario. But when I go to Cape Breton, uh, I'm going to address the North, uh, North Sydney gals, a bunch of women that have gotten together and they want to hear my story. And they want to be inspired because there are entrepreneurs, there are people working in business, they're working in government, uh, really want advice on how to how to grow, how to nurture their children, how to, you know, how to be inspired, right? And mm-hmm. so I do this constantly. Good. I, you know, constantly. Too much, maybe. but There's uh, not too much of that. Yeah, I know. No. It, there's not enough of it. Right. Like I'm going to Judy Project Rotman School of Business uh, next week to speak to, you know, 35 or so really uh, amazing women. Well, I so, hope that I hope today's discussion will will reach yeah, a lot of people yeah. too and that's and you know, really our hope. It is, Dave, and I think look, we're so much negative in this world. Oh my god. Oh, we need more positive and we need more pathways to success and we need you know, I, I I'm going to live longer cuz I'm happy. I I know that. Even with all the liabilities I've had physically, I'm going to live longer because I wake up every morning just 
really happy to be alive. Uh, and sure. uh, and I have got a really positive attitude. And uh, I, I like to make people happy. I really do. I and that's, you know, that's such an important thought as well. You know, I, I always, my wife laughs because I actually watch the Halifax News, yeah. the local <laughs> global Halifax News yeah. at dinner time because I find that the news is so negative. I know. You know, somebody's getting bombed, yeah. somebody, whatever the, the, the situation is. But, you know, I can turn on a local television at dinner time and they'll be talking about some special kid who scored a couple of goals, yeah. Yeah. you know, in, in yeah. the or some special food or, bank operation that they've organized that is giving back. You know, those are the, you know, the, the thing positive I miss, stories. What I miss in Cape Breton is CBC Radio. Right. They have gardening shows. They have how to fix it shows. Oh, they're so good. And it's, it is more positive. It mm-hmm. is more local. And, uh, you know, it's not, it's not all about, you know, uh, the, 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 the negative headlines that we constantly hear. And I, I, I love that. And I'm, I'm a real big person that really understands and the importance of place. And so Zeta Cobb is one of my best friends. And so we've been talking community development and place and, you know, how to uh, really, in a cooperative way, build up our societies, because I think the world is looking for this. And uh, so so to me, uh, this place is really important. And one of the greatest places in the world is the East Coast of Canada, right? right. It really is. It's... It's very God's pre- country. It is. It's precious, right? It is different. It is different than the rest of the country for some reason, and I, I don't know. Maybe because we are the oldest, you know. I, you know, the 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 uh, the beginning of the, our confederation started there, but there's something really good, and it's really a wonderful place to be from and to live in today. I remember Gord Pitts' book, The yes, Codfather. The Codfather. Um, he said he could have written two or three more volumes, that's actually. Right. That's right. Um, it uh, Well, so just to remind our listeners, because it's been a while since we talked about, we introduced you, um, but you have sat on, uh, I think it's close to 50 major boards in this country. You're currently on Air Canada and, and uh, Chairman of Mars, yes, which is one of the most special stories in the country about innovation. Um, You are uh, Order of Canada. You've made just a significant impact. So at this point of our discussion, you know, you spent your real good formative years in a development corporation, which I think is fantastic. Mm -hmm. It does teach you an angle on the whole the whole market that is special and needed in a lot of ways. So how, now then, how do we jump in and where was the impactful moment? Was it when you went into Michael's? Um, you yeah. know, where do you think your next stage of your life yeah, was truly defined and started? It, it really was. And, you know, and I remember negotiating a deal with Pretty Crawford. Uh, another good Nova Scotia. Another great Nova Scotia. Yeah. And he was running a Masco. And he wanted me to come work with him. And I said, here's the deal, Purdy. I don't want to be stuck in staff service positions. I want to run something. And I realized I have the power to ask. He honored that. And I ran a little division called the Den for Men, 
was a little gift store chain across Canada. I remember well, went that. To, went to Quebec. Right. And in one year, I reduced costs by 25%. I really wanted to do a deal with uh, Brookstone out of the U.S. Anyway, it would have meant having to close a bunch of stuff. It didn't work. But it gave me the thirst for, my God, what a badly run retail industry we have yeah. in Canada, right? right. And so I, that, that's where I saw the opportunity. And that then I went, honestly, I, I, I took time off and I put together a plan, identified five retailers out of the U.S. that I thought uh, would really work well in Canada. Um, and I think I could have got all of them to come. And I put a little plan together. And I was, I had friends in San Francisco, um, uh, Sutter, not, uh, Robertson Stevenson. They were yep. really great people. You would have recognized I that do. name. Yeah. And so I was selling off some of the, some of the venture capital, uh, pieces from the Genstar acquisition that Amasco right. made. Anyway, so I go to New York. And I go up to the, and I liked the craft industry. I thought that was really underserved here and thought that was great uh, opportunity. Put together some numbers, assessed how big this could be. Uh, went up to the CEO, his name was Jack Bush. And I said, hello, my name's Annette Fershurn. Um, I'm a Canadian and I'd, I think Canada needs Michaels and I'd like to do a joint venture with you. He looks at me and he says, and can you repeat that? And, <laughs> and I did. And, and I had, I had, you know, senior people at Robertson Stevenson that were supporting me, you know, but I, I literally cornered them in the, <laughs> in the Pierre Hotel uh, at this retail conference. And uh, they sat down with me for lunch. And in two and a half weeks, they took it to the board. And uh, two or three months later, we start to build out Michaels of Canada. Fantastic. I had thirteen and a half percent interest in the company. They bought, I bought two colleagues up from uh, from Michaels, and in seventeen in twenty six months, opened seventeen stores. So that was amazing and exciting, and so that was a moment, right? And it was you know it it really built my confidence. And then I got uh, a call from the headhunter. And they said, look, uh, Home Depot's looking for someone uh, to run the Canadian operation. And I said, sorry, because I did a deal with Michaels that they would buy me out in 98. This was 95. Okay. And it was a lot of money. I put 350000 U.S. dollars into that. At that time. Which was a ton of money, Dave. Yeah. ton of money. Like I borrowed and begged and but found it <laughs> and uh, and did it. And, uh, and, uh, so, so anyway, so, so, so the headhunter says, Annette, just, why don't you just please just come and maybe meet with these guys, right? So it was, you know, for Bernie and Arthur, it was Arthur particularly, it was love at first sight. He loved my Yiddish akup. He loved my, <laughs> my aggressiveness. And he, he, and they were having challenges in Canada. They bought Aikenhead, if you recall. Yeah, I do. And yeah. then there was 19 stores and they stopped expanding because they just, uh, uh, couldn't figure it out. Anyway, um, and, uh, so they, so this is a true story. Let's talk about relationships. So, Bernie, so I'm, I say, look, here's the deal. I have a deal with Michaels. I'm not going to, I'm not going to walk away because I can't walk away from that money that I put in. And, uh, and, uh, so Bernie calls Sam Wiley, 
the owners of Michael, one of the all in Texas, says, there's a woman that's running your business in Canada, and we really want, we were really thinking about running the Canadian opera. And at that time, it was 600 million was the sales at yeah. Home Depot. And it was you know, pretty significant. And they, they really wanted someone that they thought that could turn that place around. Anyway, so Charles, the brother, and Sam call me and say, Annette, why don't you come visit us? So I go down. And they said, spoke to Bernie. They really want you. We're going to give you your money back, plus 18%. And uh, and we want to thank you for what you've done. And we think this is a great opportunity for you. Now, is that cool or what? It's very cool. Very cool. And Very so, smart of them, too. Very smart of them, huh? Like, you know, and it was, it was really quite spectacular. So then I arrive at Home Depot. And I was there for 15 years, and I built it out from that $600 million to $6 billion in sales. And at the same time, I ran the Home Depot Design Center in the U.S., and I opened China from 2006 to 2009. And, uh, and they were an organization, and I, I was very independent. They gave me a bucket of money and said, Annette, I'm going to give you this money at 3%, I don't know, $6, six billion bucks or something. Mm-hmm. And you go and build it out. And wow. they were amazing. And they never turned me down on, you know, the the, the growth program. Uh, they were amazing. And, and then I had four bosses during that time. And then, you know, the sort of, you recall Bob Nardelli came in and the, 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 then it got a little bit, it was a little bit wild before Bob did, but he probably over-processed it. And uh, so, you know, all kinds of things happened and and uh, I'm very versatile. I can work with anybody. I'm like a chameleon. And uh, so I worked, I would say that all the four CEOs of Home Depot would give me a very high recommendation. And you make it sound like these are all really easy people to no, deal with. No, don't, don't, they're not. Oh you my know, God. So like, they are I so know difficult. many of these people. Oh my God, they're so they, difficult. They, these are, it's not as easy as you make it seem. No, no, and it's not easy. It wasn't <laughs> easy, It was, but boy, it helped me become more confident. Yeah. I learned the possible. That's why with you these make guys. a fantastic chair. Yeah, that's why you make it yeah possible. And uh, and so they, they just... Um, uh, they were terrific. And it was such a ride. It was such a ride to do what we did. And I think we had 28,000 people at one stage. And I, one year we opened 23 stores in one year. That's like two a month. Like, if you imagine, uh, one day I opened five stores. These are big wow. stores. Yeah, big stores. And it was the fastest and uh, the most successful I think expansion uh, Home Depot had. Of course, in the US, it was gigantic there too. But they're pretty proud pretty proud, still are, of the Canadian operation. I stay so close to So were there a couple of um, really defining moments at that time that, that, you know, things could have actually gone in a complete direction? Oh, I think, um, I think. I mean, there always are. There right? always but, are. And I think two or three times I threatened to leave. Yeah. Yeah, I did. And Well, those are the personalities I was talking about. Yes. And, uh, but... If you're not tough against those person, they they respect that. Huh? They do. When you it's the turn only over, way to do it. the only way to do it. The yeah. only way to do it. I, you know, and I said this to the prime minister recently. You know, and uh, I said, look, the way to deal with the Americans, you got to be tough. You got to know where you're going. You got to be firm, and you got to get ahead of them a bit. And that's the only way. Otherwise, you wait until they come. 
it's over. And so that's how I managed it. I, I, yeah. And so they would have liked me to go to the U.S. to, to live, and I decided not to. And so, you know, we, we, you know, I resigned from Home Depot in 2011. And uh, that's when I started my next journey. Yeah, which which, which we're going to get into in yep, a second. I, yep. I just want to say how glad I am, though, that you didn't take that yeah. lure to go down south oh, because we need more of our great leaders to stay home. We, there are a few other things that I want to take into later around that. But um, you, uh, you resisted it. And... At that time, um, did you start to build a team around you of sort of trusted uh, people that maybe you took from one company to another, or did you grow new teams? I grow. I I've always been a believer in growing new teams. That's great. Like I did not take you know, half of my staff no, from so much from, better for from, the country when is, you do that. Yeah, it yeah. is. I don't do that. I. You know what my job is is really the, my my job is to help people understand how good they are and that they have more capacity than they think they do and they're more productive than they think they are and I create an environment that sandbox that is big enough for them to be empowered be part of the overall framework contribute to and know where they're going and I think I think you know that sounds simple but it's and it's hard work but once you have it in your DNA I do this in everything I do, everything I do yeah. in, you know, everything I do. And so, so for me, uh, 50% of my job, all of my life was developing people, right. 50%, 50%. Yeah. I mean, I, in our, in our role, we get asked all the time, you know, what, what should you really be looking at what a CEO does right or wrong? And, uh, and I think, the best thing you can do is just hire great people. Exactly, exactly. And uh, and it sounds so easy, and but it's not. And it, it takes a real art. And uh, um, I also think it's worth mentioning, though, that, um, again, just the humble side of your personality, you're, you made all of those incredible strides in male-dominated industries. Yes, you know, which most of them were yeah, at that time in the world's history, but yeah, they still are. But in particular, those industries yep. and and um, <clears throat> it, what was the learning from that in terms of helping other women? Yeah, you know, in today's world. Yeah, look, a um, few things I would comment on there. Um, what I was, what I hope I was good at was also. Um, uh, caring for the family of leaders, right? And I dealt with people that did not fit. And 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 I, I and no one was ever surprised when they had to leave an organization with me, ever. Ever. It's my philosophy. I'm very open. I have you know, I have performance reviews every day. I ask people to performance review me every day. It's just it's the nature of the beast here. And, That's great. And uh, and I and 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 Home Depot taught me that. I must say, I, they 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 taught me how to formalize all that thinking. Uh, during uh, I did a live three hundred and sixty, a live one. Uh, that was tough to do uh, mm-hmm. in my third year at Home Depot. But I I just um, you know and. 
and what I what I tell women, what I you know in environments like this, I am I'm the chameleon, right? I know where I'm going. I'm very focused on where I need to get to, but I am a collaborative person. I am someone that listens to people that don't agree with me, that aren't like me. I hire people that I don't like because I think it's more important for the contribution of what that person can contribute to the team and to the whole. Really important, right? And so so to me, this is something I try to get instilled in women and men. And anyone, I, I get really nervous when I see just an homogenous group of people, period, anywhere. I love this country because look at us here, look right. at the diversity of us. It, it makes me feel safe. Yes. It makes me feel safe. I, I get very uncomfortable now when I'm just in a room of white men or, you know, like uh, I, I'm, uh, I love the colors of the rainbow. I love, I love being around people that are different than me. Um, and I love what they can contribute to an organization. I'm right. really someone that's really been driven that way. When I started at Home Depot, only there weren't, weren't any women, right? And no women in merchandising, no women in operations. And I changed that. You know, by the time I left, it was about 40%. You know, I, I don't think it's gotten any bigger or uh, uh because I think you have to really drive it, and yeah. you have well, to. Well, forty percent is head of the curve. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Head of the curve. Head of the curve. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My partner Heather was yeah. one of the founders of the Thirty Percent Club in Canada. Yes. And yes. Uh, and it had a good run for a while, yeah. but we're struggling now. Yeah, with we that are thirty percent. We are. We're very much struggling, uh, and that's probably less than thirty, less than forty percent now. But, but look, uh, to me, it it was, um, you know, and look, there are a few things that drive me. Uh, diversity of thought is one. Diversi- and you can only get diversity of thought when you've got different people around you. And I always found ways to listen to people with different perspectives and because there are customers at the end of the day. And so I've always been driven by the upside down pyramid, right? So the customer's at the top and I'm at the bottom. And, you know, all what's in between uh, needs to trickle up and trickle down. And, um, but I'm a servant leader. I, you know, I remember saying that for the first time when I was at Home Depot, and they, they had people laughing at me. How could you <laughs> say that? Like it's a very, it was a very macho yeah, uh, place. Yeah, it was a very good yeah, one. yeah. And uh, and uh, I remember the first time I went down to a big meeting. There were sixteen guys and me, and so Arthur's at the head of the table, and he says, um, "Okay, we have a newcomer here. This is Ned for sure, and she's from Canada. She's going to run our operations. I want you to help her." And I want you guys to stop cursing. We cannot, we have to stop cursing. And it was so hilarious, huh? Like it, it was, it was wild. It was wild days because the growth of that company was just going through the roof. I don't know. I was at, when I started with 600. They would say, would they have said anything about the cursing had it been a man? No, not at all. Right. Not at all. No, 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 not at all. No, and it's changed considerably uh, uh, since then. Um, and, and it is a, Really, a fantastic company. I love it, and it's uh, it's it is a company that has allowed a lot of my growth in terms of my career, and and so yeah. So I think I think um, you know the ability 
So, so big, big, big piece of who I am is that piece, diversity, other big piece, all of my life is this issue of sustainability. Yes. I believed in recycling when no one understood what it meant. And I learned that from my father, right? I learned, I learned he could put shit in the ground and not have to buy fertilizer and all this equipment to get all this equipment, all this fertilizer spread. And it was natural. Right? right, like this was natural. They weren't full of antibiotics back then either. You know, the 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 cows, and so so there was a lot of. No, not 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 saying that's the case now, but but it 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 has you know like he taught me that look, the earth, the planet, Mother Earth needs to be given back what it's taken from it. And so, so that's always been, and when I was at Home Depot, I would work with utility companies. I would work, to, we, we started this eco options idea right. that you, you present your product and there's an eco option uh, product as well, which right. would be a, you know, a, a product that was made in a sustainable way. And, and uh, so I think, you know, all those things were really important to me because I saw where the world was going before other people do. and you you're uh, and you can come at it from a very authentic way because of where you started exactly exactly yeah i get it because i you know when, when i grew up there was no processed food we had vegetable gardens we had we did turnips and cabbage and we put them in the in the, in our in our basements that were you know and we would we would kill that calf and we would kill a pig and we'd kill the chickens and that would be our whole winter's food, right? Yeah. So I never had, you know, and potatoes. like No and Chef Boyardee. None of that stuff. <laughs> none of that stuff. So I grew up on that. I'm yeah, embarrassed to say. <laughs> yeah, none of that stuff. And and milk and butter and we'd make it all, right? And so you know, it's a wonderful way to live and we were healthier as kids than my with, than my friends and neighbors who were eating a yeah. lot of this junk too. Yeah. Well, this is, but it wasn't you know, we, I wish we had six hours um, and we'll probably have to do two more of these, but we've got some time left still. And I want you to tell us about your new passion, mm-hmm. um, your energy yep. business, because yep. it is very compelling and it's an exciting story too. Yeah, it is. Look, so I left Home Depot in 2011, decided to take a year off. Uh, and went around the world, 16 countries. My husband and I had a bucket list. We had a ball. We would come back here because I was on a number of boards. Liberty Mutual is a board that I've been on since 2007. And uh, so I'd come back, but we went all through Asia. And I'd been through lots of parts of China, obviously. But, you know, Vietnam, we, we went I've Japan for the first time. We went to um, all amazing Singapore. We went to amazing countries and went to Europe and we went to the Baltic Seas and we, and we just, it was a time for me to reflect. And as I went through and went through these places, I saw sustainability being a really big issue. And I saw it in food and I saw it in water and I saw it in, in energy. And, and so I came back and said, I'm not doing anything like retail again, because I, you know, I'm, I, I sold too much stuff that was been put in landfill sites. I did, <laughs> I, you know, like, a, you really think, yeah, what are you going to do in I the understand. last, last, you know, 30 years of your life? And so I started a company called NR Store, founded it with a great friend, David Patterson, uh, who, uh, who was a, someone that I knew, uh, for years. And, uh, and so I, uh, just 
it's called inner storing. And it was to find different ways to store energy. And, you know, we produce a lot of wind, we produce a lot of water, hydro, but all that excess stuff is, you know, is curtailed. It's not effectively integrated into the system. And so what storage does is um, it finds way, finds ways to hold that energy and put it on the grid when it's needed, right? And so we experimented and we did small projects like flywheel facility that's still operating today. We built that in 2014 and it's for frequency regulation, just goes up and down constantly just to, to as a balancing tool. Yeah. Um, and then we have a compressed air project on a salt cavern that we worked with HydroStore on. We built that out, which was fascinating. And, uh, and again, that was... Compressed air in a cavern goes up and down. So you, you, you take in, uh, electricity and release it. And then, uh, and then, uh, and then, then battery technology. I've been working with Tesla since 2014, selling power walls. Yeah. And, but, but where where I really saw the latest opportunity was my team and I. I do nothing by myself. I'm the stupidest person in the in the crew, but uh, but I am their leader, which is really wonderful. Because uh, uh, I don't have an engineering degree, you know, but I have a mind that works like a, a bit of an engineer. Yes, and uh, and so I encourage young women STEM. Uh, you know, get some of that background. Anybody get that background. Um, so I I uh, saw an opportunity for big energy storage projects. And so about five years ago, we started working on a big energy storage project called Oneida. And uh, we did this with six nations of the Grand River and uh, decided to do it differently. And, you know, in the past, projects were built. And then at the end of the project, the uh, the indigenous peoples would be invited in somehow, some way. I thought that was not the way to do it. I wanted, I, we signed an MOU and a letter of intent with, uh, uh, and an agreement with, uh, with Matt Jamison, who was the CEO of uh, Six Nations of the Grand River Development Corporation back in 2018, around there. And we worked shoulder to shoulder. We worked on this project from beginning till we closed it, and we'll be up. We'll be having a role in operating that project. Wow! And um, this, and I, I'm a real believer. Uh, I spent some time with uh, uh, Marie Sinclair, who was the the uh, the 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 senior leader who wrote the reconciliation report for Canada. Right. And uh, number ninety two is that uh, corporate Canada needs to genuinely uh, treat uh, Indigenous people as equal partners and invite them into um, into the uh, the business world. Right. And uh, so we announced and we closed last Thursday, financially, the largest energy storage project, certainly in Canada, in North America, one of the biggest in the world. Oh, congratulations. It's 250 megawatts. Wow. A thousand megawatt hours. That's exciting. And it's right on the grid. Um, and it's, uh, it's Haldeman County. And, uh, what will happen? We don't, we won't have to use our gas generators as much. 
for peaking purposes. We'll right. take in that extra energy at night when the wind blows, you know, or during the seasons when the when there's too much water flowing. Take it in, put it on the grid. Uh, we'll cycle it 250 times, and it's uh, it's like the size of an average gas plant. That's how big it is. Wow. Yeah, but it, but what's wonderful about storage? Electricity can go both ways. Yes. You take it in, and it goes out. And that that dual purpose tool in everything that we do is going to be such an advantage. I see Incredible. big opportunity. And so we're trying to do projects in in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Saskatchewan to get off coal quicker and earlier, at all with uh, Indigenous peoples. And um, so, yeah. So I think it's the new way of doing business. And and you know, one of the things on in our store, our mission is for profit and purpose. And uh, it's been that way for me all my life, right? Uh, uh, because I'm a risk taker, because yeah. I play the long game. And uh, so it's it's really, you know, one of my biggest achievements, I think, this project yeah. in my life. Well, you know, I uh, I watched some of the work you've done with Mars. Yep. And 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 you got involved at a time when it wasn't uh, no, wasn't so easy. It, it wasn't so easy. <laughs> yeah. um, but with a terrific mission, uh, terrific you know, mission. And uh, it's a great so, organization. Yeah, I, I, I love everything. Our mission from Mars. It's a it's an organization that is also resilient and flexible. And Young Wu, uh, really doing a great job in bringing it into, you know, the next evolution of success. And right. it's, it's, uh, and I also chair SDTC, which yeah. is the crown corporation that on sustainable uh, uh, development technologies, which I'm really proud of, clean tech. Yeah. And so we work growing companies across from beginning to end across the, uh, across the country. And so, yeah, so it's, there's so a lot a of You've got a day things. job and about 10 yeah. part-time jobs. And another cool thing that I don't know whether you know about, Dave, but I, in 2010, uh, we opened the Versurin Center for Sustainability and Energy in the Environment at Cape Breton University. I read about it, but yeah. I don't know much about and it. Today, Tell us about that. And today, it, it, it evolved, right? It was really tough in the beginning, uh, you know, how to, what, what we're going to do. Uh, but Dr. Beth Mason, who runs the center now, is doing amazing work in biorefining, taking yep. the natural, taking fish guts and making it into gold. For right. instance, that's one about the podcasts that I had with Beth uh, yes. that uh, that I did a couple of summers ago. But taking um, taking you know excess wood product, fermenting, adding chemicals and enzymes to it, and producing producing products. Um, Lululemon wants to only produce organic dyes, so we're looking for ways to develop ferment different types of of of. Of materials mm -hmm. and and produce uh, like there's all kinds of we're taking trying to take the petrochemicals out of everything, right. out of clothing, out of that's our job and and so it's very exciting. It's uh, yeah. it's the it, you know it, it's it's so we and, and a great thing for that area. Great too, thing for that for area. The future of that area. Think of it. Talk about coming full circle, right? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, let's take those natural resources, all the waste. We we you know. An average fish, we throw away about sixty percent of it. Yes. Like, think of that. That's if got the same protein as, as in the fillet. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> but think of what we're doing. We we can't do this anymore. Right. We got to stop doing this as a society, and it's got to come full circle. It really does. And so, yeah. And 
I go back to my the Mi'kmaq of Nova Scotia, where I've been very influenced by, and uh, and I listen to them, and I hear them, yeah, and they play the long game, right? And we haven't. We've played the shorter game, and and there is somewhere in between that business needs to settle. Yeah, and uh, we need uh, to find ways responsibly to uh, to be profitable, but also uh, make sure that shareholders, stakeholders, community, all benefit from what we do. Well, you know it. Uh Really, the vision for this podcast was to try to break down the walls around, uh, bring down the walls, at least for a discussion with some of our most impactful leaders and to try to inspire and set examples for some of our younger talent in this world to rise up and know that it's possible. I think in today's world, there we're always talking about ways things won't happen mm-hmm. yeah. or why they can't happen. Yeah, right. And as opposed to saying, no, there are pathways. And is, is, you know, think about a young person even wanting to accomplish half of your, your biography. And if everybody did half of that biography, the world would be so much further along and and better and and you know I get hired to do a CEO search the biggest challenge is there are no candidates and uh, we aren't uh, people are opting out which is a sad thing but more sad is that there aren't people coming up and asking for those mm-hmm. roles mm-hmm. they it's almost like they feel it's not reachable it's not real right it they, they become so Yep. Distant. And, and so I hope that these kinds of discussions, you know, do demonstrate to young farmers. Yes. uh, Yes. You know, uh, young um, young people wherever they are in the world that you can get there. You just have to have some of these, the resiliency, the risk. Yep. ability and and uh, and and to be humble enough to draw from your village and your community when you need the help along the way so I'm uh, I am just thrilled that that you joined us today I I have so much more I'd love to cover I hope you'll come back because uh, we didn't talk about succession and in the whole, uh, development of younger people as they come up through the system and and how other leaders and our peers, how can we get them to take the same interest level you have in mm. their futures and development and, and to let them maybe come on shows like this because, you know, mentors are important and not everybody is lucky enough to know or to have one nearby you know, my hope is that this show for a couple of hours every week will be that mentor and will give them access to uh, leaders like yourself who have the courage to open up. So I'm very blessed to call you friend and uh, and I hope you will come back. And thank you so much. Thank you very much, Dave. This has been the RDK Show. Stay resilient. Find us at RDK Show on social media.